Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 makes authentication easy. We love building things that are fun. And let's face it, authentication is not always fun or easy to build. It can be a pain. It can take hours to implement and sometimes even days. And even after you have it all in place, you have to keep it up to date, keep it secure. And, and Auth0 makes it super easy and fast to implement real-world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. You can allow users to log in however you want, regular username and password, Facebook, Twitter, enterprise ID providers like AD or Office 365, or let them log in without passwords, just like we do on changelog.com. To get started, grab the SDK for your platform of choice, add a few lines of code to your project. This can be a mobile app, a website, or even an API. They all need authentication. Sign up for Auth0 and get the free plan or try the enterprise plan for free for 21 days at auth0.io slash the changelog. That's A-U-T-H, the number zero, dot I-O slash the changelog. No credit card required. Once again, auth0.io slash the changelog and by DigitalOcean who just launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service designed for developers who want a simple way to store and serve a vast amount of data, such as hosting web assets, storing user-generated content such as images and large media files, archiving backups in the cloud, and storing logs. Just like you use S3, Spaces has an ecosystem of S3 compatible tools and libraries that can be used to manage your space. And it's available independent of DigitalOcean servers. You don't need to use anything else but just Spaces if you want. And to make it easy to try for both new and existing DigitalOcean customers, you can get started today with a free two-month trial of Spaces by going to do.co slash changelog. And for new customers only, you'll also receive a $10 credit to use for DigitalOcean droplets or other services. Once again, do.co slash changelog. You're listening to the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. On today's show, Jared and I are at Microsoft Connect in New York City, talking about the backstory of Visual Studio with Julia Lucen, Chris Dias, and PJ Meyer. In part one of the show, we talk with Julia Lucen, Corporate Vice President of Visual Studio and 26-year veteran of Microsoft about the beginnings of the Visual Studio product line, how Microsoft missed the internet, and how the community is judging them and looking at today's Microsoft with a very old lens. In part two of the show, we talk with Chris Dias, Principal Program Manager of Visual Studio and .NET, and PJ Meyer, Product Manager, about how Visual Studio Code evolved from lessons learned with their cloud-based editor called Monaco, how they had to radically change to reach developers beyond Windows, and how this open source project is thriving. What is it that you would like to talk about? Like, what's important to you? Like, we we talk to developers, we talk to the open source community. Would Great. be interesting for and you. And that's to talk. my kind of people. Okay. Because we are one of those very fluent in GitHub and open source people. Yeah. And I I would love to talk about it. And the reason okay. is, for example, like I still feel people are judging us and looking at us with very old lens. 
Okay. And yeah. I was telling someone, <clears throat> like, I can remember it was three years ago at this very conference in this very studio where we announced we open sourced and made .NET open source and cross platform. Three years ago, yeah. We did a show on that. Ah. We yep. did. Great. And we were excited too. Yes. And our audience was like, wait, what? What? Wait, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we've been, the, we've been those people that have felt the way you're talking about, but see the new Microsoft. Great. And I would love for you guys to help me get that word out because awesome. I feel like there's still so many people, even, it got better this year, but like even two years ago, right? They're like, what? You mean .NET is open source? It's like, what? Yeah. .NET is cross-platform? Like, it's like completely news to them. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out where are all of the places these people are hiding. Well. And how can we get the message out as, you know, broadly yeah. um, listening as possible? Well, a lot of those people are listening to our podcast, so I think that's a good, that's a good thing. Um, an interesting place that I think we could start because, you know, according to Wikipedia, which, congratulations, you have a Wikipedia page. Oh. Is that you? Uh, it is you. I Unless don't know. I else. haven't went and looked. So. Did you not know you have a Wikipedia page? Someone mentioned to me, but never looked. Okay. Well, you know, I looked. I found. Uh, uh -oh. Were you born in Shanghai in 1970? Yes. Okay. I figured it was wow. you because a lot of that the information lined up. Live reveal. It even looks accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody from that Julia's family Someone, wrote this about her. Maybe. That's pretty cool, oh my gosh, right? That's that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it was good for me because I have given many talks and stuff, you know, and usually do a little intro about my background before. Yeah. So someone probably captured it, and um, it's all accurate. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, that's great. So this this will be accurate then, because uh, you graduated in 1991 with a bachelor's degree in electrical and computer engineering from Washington, and you started working at Microsoft very. Right so away, now. yeah. Like, so you've uh, been at, with the company for like 26 years. 25 years. 25 years. And so we've just been tracking this change, you know, from the outside, like we said, maybe three, four, four years, yeah. we've seen the opening up of Microsoft, mm -hmm. but you've seen it through many different phases. So maybe let's start with you telling us a little bit of your history with the company, and then you can tell us this, this change that you've seen from the inside and your perspective on it and how it all came well, about. I would love to. So as you mentioned, I, I know I joined Microsoft in February of 92 as a developer working on Microsoft Access. Nice. That was before we shipped the first version wow. of Microsoft Access. And I learned about databases in college from Microsoft Access was the first it, little, <clears throat> little database I learned about. It so. is definitely the desktop database and you know, the tool of the rage. And there's yeah. even, you know, even now I think there's still a, a set of loyal users, you know, of the product. I'm sure there are. And uh, I once started working on this other tool. I like to call it the worst named Microsoft product ever. It's Visual Interdev. Visual mm -hmm. Interdev. Okay. Do you remember that product? No, no. But I agree, it's not a very good name. What's and the, the, what the product did was, it was our first web development tool, web development tool, in like, we shipped it in like 96, 97, and against IS, ASP, not to be confused with ASP.net, okay. which we shipped much later. We were being called Visual Basic for the web. Oh, okay. And so that was our first attempt of having a web development tool in a very um, in, the, in the late 90s. I think we shipped the first version in like late 96 or early 97 or something. That's when the internet came out. It, it, well, basically. Yeah. So 95, <laughs> 95 really. was actually when you know Bill Gates actually had the internet tidal wave memo, internal right. memo inside Microsoft. So a lot of different teams start spun up, start looking like, hey, what should we do about the internet? Right. Uh, we did miss the internet, I would think. 
in my opinion, in a you, significant you did miss it? From a business model perspective, yeah. we totally missed it.、Mm. We didn't create Amazon. We didn't create Facebook. We didn't create Google. You know, all of these really internet business models. Right.、Uh, even though they all started their business from the Microsoft IE browser. Right. Internet Explorer. I mean, for a lot of people. Yeah, I think we were the time, enablers. The yeah. yeah, I think we enabled people to build these true internet companies, but we didn't really. Were you involved in IE?、Uh, I was.、Uh, I was peripherally involved with IE because. The rendering engine, the HTML rendering engine, was also what we used in Visual InterDev to help you design HTML. So we worked, we collaborated with the、uh, IE team on those pieces, on those、so、components. Back then, the mission statement wasn't like a PC on every desk running Microsoft software or something like that. I think it was a、uh, uh, what, what was the thing? It was a、uh, a Windows. I think it's a Windows. Like it's a PC on every single desktop. I think that was、yeah. it. A PC on every single desktop. And the infer part was, you know, running running Microsoft software. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that was inferred. And well, so the PC by saying PC, you're assuming Microsoft, right? Yeah,、definitely. I guess definitely implied in a post-only Microsoft world. Yeah, it's not that would make PC makes things change over time.、Yeah. But the mission statement back at that time was that、right. PCs. I mean, it was all Windows. I mean, it was ninety eight percent. But the thing, you know, you asked me what changed. You、yeah. know, like I have seen, it is very important to realize that in the a lot of the Microsoft internal engineering and you know everything practices was very much aimed at that day and at you know like day and era. Yeah. If you think about even you know in the ninety seven, let's just say ninety seven kind of <clears throat>、uh, time frame. Ninety-seven also happened to be when we first had the first Visual Studio product. When we take Visual Basic, Visual C plus plus, Visual InterDev, Visual J plus plus, made that into、things. Visual Studio, right? Yeah, That's、man. why it's called Visual Studio. Okay, because you're、then. just putting all those together, right? And then that was、uh, so we launched Visual Studio line twenty years ago, and this year is also the twenty-year birthday for wow, Visual Studio. Wow! And have you been on Visual Studio the whole time, the entire time, the entire、wow. time? So, and then if I think about what. Delivering software looks like back then, and you know, if you're thinking about back in '97, '98, where would you go buy something like Visual Studio, or Microsoft Office? You go to Egghead. Yeah. Remember those places? Or Best Buy. Well, there's a or Best Buy, or there's <laughs>、yeah. a. I don't even remember. Was there Best Buy in '97?、Uh, I don't know. I feel like there barely, was barely, and you go buy a physical box, right? right? That's right. what we called it, box software. Right. And what was the If you think about engineering structure for Microsoft, we have a development team which I was on, and we had a test team. Then we had a program management team, and the test team plays a very important role back then because their job is to prevent what we call recall class bugs. And what is a recall class bug? Is that the bug is so bad. Mm. The physical boxes has to come back to Microsoft,、oh. which has been shipped all over the world. Has to come back to Microsoft and get rebuilt. That is a recall class book. That's back、like. when software quality mattered. <laughs> well, I think that we have different way to think about it, but、sure. that actually happened to us before. And you can imagine the cost. Oh man! And so you know, so who whose head rolls when that happens? Does a head roll?、Uh, uh, I think that I, I don't know if the physical head rolls, but I will say that. <laughs> The, uh, Hopefully, a metaphorical head roll. I will say the test、Someone、manager. Role that, you know, you the test、that. manager of the product feel very responsible、oh, yeah. if that happens. The bug stops there because that is where the bug stops.、Mm. Wow! And software development was so antiquated then in comparison to today's world. Right, Would because you agree? well, because the infrastructure wasn't there. So the so you no, know, you optimize for different things. So at that time, if you call, if you had any questions or problems with the software, you would call Microsoft. There's no internet, right? right. 
and you will call our product support people on the phone, try to go describe your problem. And it will be like, oh, we're trying to go help you sort it out, et cetera. But even if I figure out as a little issue that I had, I don't really have a way as Microsoft to give you a patch. Right. There's just no such mechanism allowed or, right. you know, it's really enabled. The only way and, to get them something would be to mail that to them. Well, even this mail, like, you know, like you have, like the installer doesn't support a patch, right? right? The software doesn't know how to patch. Like you need to have someone in your IT to patch it for you. It's super Very complicated. Very technical sounds, problems. Sounds well. right. terrible. Yeah. And so think about like the reason I think about that day and age is because that particular set of development practices was working well for us in that day and age. Yeah. And, you know, it lasted for the next really 10, 15 years. It kind of worked that way. And then, you know, like it just didn't work mm -hmm. because it's kind of like the land phone to the cell phone transition. You know, it's like these big, huge, like the internet transition says like that is no longer how you should ship software. Right. And your, your customer's expectation changed and the velocity changed because back then it took us three years to ship software, and that was okay. That was already fast enough. They were know? named by years. They were named by years. Right. And people like to hold on to old software. Yeah. Where you tell them it's not secure. Like, don't run it. It's terrible. And right. you have to charge for updates, sometimes large amounts for the update, because it's such an expensive process. It's an expensive process. You have the entire development team. The business model back then was to sell you to the latest version, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So now you kind of look back to say, wow, you know, that's kind of like, that was great for Microsoft back in, you know, 97. Mm -hmm. And the entire business and process engineering practices was designed for that day and age. And, the, you know, again, that kind of infrastructure. But fast forward, you know, when we, for us, the transformation really started after we shipped Visual Studio 2012, which is five years ago. And that version of Visual Studio is also interesting because that was the version where we did not get to decide our own shipping schedule. Mm. Our schedule was tied with Windows 8. Oh, so it was going to ship no matter what. It was a major release because we had to do so much work to support Windows 8 development paradigm. Um, that was, you know, a, a lot of challenges for our team to tackle. And after we come from shipping VS 2012, you take a look, we're looking ahead, and there's a couple of things become very clear. We can no longer ship in three-year product cycles. We're not going to survive if we ship three yeah. years because the technology is changing so fast and so quickly. Mm -hmm. So we really started, we made a, you know, a top-down decision that we're going to have quarterly updates, and that's going to have new capabilities and new features. And this that was in 2012. This, this that was in, yeah. Okay. So our first quarterly update was VS 2012 update one, and it was a very traumatic thing for the team because the entire engineering process was not set up to yeah. go do this. And I want to give you a metaphor. Imagine like in the old days, people buy encyclopedias, right? They're beautifully bounded A to Z. You buy oh, a yeah. whole thing. You stuff your whole bookshelf. And what we want, where what we're trying to do is like, don't buy the whole set. I just want to go insert a chapter in this one book, or I want to go rip a few pages out. I want to go cross a word out and replace with a different word. What we wanted to do is incremental updates to the whole encyclopedia versus the whole big encyclopedia. But our machinery only knows how to produce this right. whole big Buying thing. The book, you know. Once every three years. That's what the, the factory, if you may, how the, our, you know, how our operationalization you know, was designed for. So it was a major transformation that we have to go through. And that transformation happened to every single major Microsoft product line to say, wow, how we really take that 
huge box software mentality and think about every piece of software we ship in Microsoft as a service, which you make incremental updates quickly and you really observe and respond to customer feedback quickly. And that's the, you know, that's really the pursuit that we have been mm -hmm. on. Interesting. So that, that transition seems to correlate with what we opened with, which is the opening up of the software as well, because you could have continued, you could have changed all your machinery, but still shipped proprietary binaries, right? right? But you didn't do that. You changed the machinery of the way you build the software to be incremental, but you also seem like one by one or sometimes five by five, these different individual products or like .NET Core and then more of .NET and right. so on and so forth. You just opened up the software itself. So yep. speak to that decision yep. and, and how it played out. Yeah, and that is another great question because you're exactly right. Changing the software process doesn't necessarily change the deliverable. And the core strategic pivot we made is that Visual Studio was really for a long time, and that's the old meme we're talking about. People think about it as the product that only runs on Windows and only support Microsoft platforms. That was true for many years. And the strategic pivot we actually decide on is that we want to, and it's very much tied with the new Microsoft mission when Satya becomes CEO, right? We want to empower every person, every organization to achieve more. And how that come down to us in the developer division space is that we want to really empower every developer and every development team to achieve more. And if we're only helping people running on Windows and targeting Microsoft platform, that's very far from every developer yeah, and every lit, development right. team. And that's when we started pivot to the, you know, I think that was the first slide Scott showed. And we've been showing that slide for the last three, four years, which is our, any developer, any app, any platform. And that was a core strategic pivot we have made. And everything really ties with that strategic pivot in terms of, well, how do we engage with all the developers out there? And what are the meaningful engagement looks like? And this is where we start, you know, tap, you know, start doing iOS Android development, helping with the mobile side. And we look at what people really need in the cloud space, you know, in the mobile space. And we take Node.net, made it open source and cross-platform. And it's become a fantastic way for customers to share code mm -hmm. between their Unity gaming to their cloud backend, to their website, to their mobile, you know, apps. It's just really the best programming language that can share common business logic. And today, you know, Miguel showed you how you can take the core business logic written in C Sharp and then embed that into your iOS and Android app. Mm -hmm. So that, in, you know, that capability of us looking, understanding developers' needs and open sourcing our core framework capability, uh, you know, and really allow this breadth of scenario that opened up, that has been super powerful for us. And then with that, not to mention, we also start to develop Visual Studio Code. That was exactly what we were going to lead to next because you have this now bifurcation of Visual Studio where you have the established, you know, uh, 25, 20-year-old 20 project that millions of people are using, but then brand new, open, different, I mean, Greenfield, new editor, right? Yeah, so that first decision. of all, the, the, you know, when we start to do that is that we realize that there are different types of developers. When you start talking to a lot of developers, there are a lot of, lot of different needs. And I always ask people, like, do you use Microsoft Word? Usually I get a nod. Do you use OneNote? I also get a nod. Mm -hmm. Do you use Notepad? I, again, you get a nod because personally I use all three. And I'm not really confused about when I'm going to use which one. And they're, you, know, you can say they're all for editing words, but I use them, and, and a lot of people use them for different scenarios. Right. The power of the IDE is that 
there's a whole set of it's particularly powerful when you have very complex multi-step processes that would just simplify and automate it for you. Right. That is actually one of the biggest powers of the IDE. Think about, for example, what we demoed on stage in terms of mobile development. You're developing you know, a bunch of code, we're compiling it, and then we're actually like patching that into the device or emulator and then setting up the debugger with it. And we demo very similar scenarios for Docker's development against the, our, our Azure AKS, you know, Azure Kubernetes service. Uh, and from Visual Studio ID, it's like a simple, almost F5 gesture, then all of that workflow is tightened for you. But, I mean, a lot of developers love that. But there are also developers, for some scenario, they're like, I don't want to use your workflow. Yeah. I want to go construct my own workflow. So I just want the code editor to go do a thing for me, and I can go assemble my own workflow for me. That also happens. And so we're like, you know what? In that case, Visual Studio Code is great for you. You define and you decide what your workflow is. It's not going to package these things up for you. So you have the full freedom to go do and write whatever code you want to go write. Mm -hmm. And it provides this light you know, IntelliSense to help you. It has this light capability on debugging to help you. So it's not going to decide your workflow for you. So we see those two things as fundamental differences in how developers approach certain scenarios. Yeah. And so we think there's very valuable that we provide both of those to enable those scenarios. Well, uh, Visual, Visual Studio Code has been on fire lately. Yeah. Everybody, everybody like we talked to was trying cool it, for some switching. reason. It's, uh, it had a bad name, or not so much a name generally, but it just it seems like I've Amongst the open heard source more and more crowd. people talk about it, and not just talk about it, but also use it and be like, this is the best for this, or this is the best for that. And it's, it's scenarios where they have workflows, or it's scenarios where they don't really have workflows, right. and it's kind of a good fit for, for many. One thing that I always wonder with decisions like this coming out of like a, a large corporation like Microsoft, where it's this new direction, we're going to continue with Visual Studio, we're also going to have Visual Studio Code. I wonder the how that idea percolated, and then like who championed it, and how it became, you know, as vice president of the Visual Studio section of, of Microsoft. Surely you know, how did that idea come out, and like, was it... Did you think of it one day? Was it some, somebody on your team? Or like, hey, well, let's do VS Code alongside Visual Studio and you know, run these things uh, in parallel? Well, the, you know, the decision, like, like most things in Microsoft, wasn't like no one person's like, you know, idea. It's actually a lot of people have been discussing scenarios like this for uh -huh. a while. If you look at the code heritage of VS Code, a lot of that was actually in our Monaco, was the online development environment, which Eric Gamma, who is our technical fellow, you know, who's overseeing the project, our initial thing is really when we look at it to say, hey, do we need to have a fully in the browser experiences? And that's where actually where Eric's team was in the very beginning start, you know, working through on that. Hmm. And our learning is that we actually have that, you know, the, the Monaco editor embedded in a number of you know, different scenarios. And what we learned is that developers really wanted a local, you know, on their Mac or PC, you know, on their own desktop kind of scenario, which is really not surprising because we have a lot of, you know, Microsoft has 65,000 developers that's kind of coding every day. And I remember we had this conversation. I remember Anders was there and Eric was there and you know, a bunch of other people. And we're like, why don't we just make a local editor? And we can, it's an experiment. We can see how the community you know, thinks about it, whether it's going to catch on or not. And we have, between Eric Gamma, who obviously was one of the key folks behind Eclipse, back in IBM and um, all of the VS folks we have, we have many, many, many decades of experience building IDEs. Yeah. So we know what are the 
You know, what are the key workflows and things like that? What are the thoughts? So we positioned it to be a what we call a lightweight code optimized editor. That was the key positioning. And we're like, that is the area we're really going to focus on. And we're going to have a very flexible extension system. And the way we design extension is going to be such that you know, it can never interfere with the main editor experience, which is a core lesson that we have learned from both Eclipse and Visual Studio. Uh, I cannot necessarily say the same thing about the Visual Studio extension system or the Eclipse extension system. We have taken these lessons that we have collectively learned and applied it to the design of VS Code. And you know, we initially were like, hey, let's try it out to see if it actually is something that's actually going to resonate with the market and um, to see if there's actually a developer need. And what we learned was, yes, there is one. Yeah. Uh, and not to mention that you know, it's always great when, when, we, when our strategy of really serving all the developers came married very well with you know, identifying a good pain points and then actually deliver a good solution. When those things come together, it just has been super powerful. Yeah, that's gotta be exciting. It is very exciting. And I think that you know, I, as much as it's great for developers, you know, one of the key things we're really hoping to show developers is that Microsoft is different. I mean, we can do marketing event all day long, but there's power in people using a open source cross-platform Microsoft code editor called yeah. Visual Studio code <laughs> every day. Yeah, uh, and absolutely. I think and it's one of the things we are hoping is to, it will help you know, um, developers worldwide see us in new light. Can you speak to that change maybe since it's out there now, more and more people are using it. How has, how has the, uh, the feedback loop, so to speak, of you putting it out there, having this hypothesis that this will happen and it does begin to happen. Well, I think that, you know, the thing is that the first thing we, the, I will say that the hypothesis like, well, the, really the reaction is that we always, I will say that, you know, as Microsoft people, we think we have pretty good tech, but I think that, you know, we made in the past, we're more closed. Now when we come out open, what we really didn't know is whether the community will welcome us will actually truly embrace. That was the question in our mind. There's really not that much question that we'll have great tech that will actually be a good product. Mm -hmm. And what we, well, once we put on GitHub, we were just amazed by how many contributors, they're telling their logging issues, they're working with us out there in the community. And Visual Studio Code, um, in GitHub's latest ranking, we are number one in terms of contributors. Wow. We are double, almost double the next project, which is Facebook's React Native. Yeah. In terms of contributors, right? That's just totally amazing. And, you know, like there's lots and lots of active discussions going on, you know, in VS Code GitHub repos. And it completely changed the way of how our team works. Because before we want to, you know, before we actually are engaging with the community, like when the team was um, working internally before the launch, you know, we work on, you know, monthly kind of sprint kind of schedule for that particular team. And once we started to, you know, open source, you know, on GitHub, the community feedback come in and you know, the team realized they need to go spend up to like 30, 40% of their time interacting with community on GitHub, triaging issues, respond to requests, you know, and address any concerns. And you have to be active you know, on the community in order to have that kind of level of interaction. And so one of the phrase I increasingly say is that we're, no, we're not only customer obsessed, which we are now, we're also community obsessed. Because we really view the community as an extension of our team. And that is true for Visual Studio Code, and that is also true for .NET project we have, or TypeScript, or no, all of these main um, GitHub repos that you know, we actually drive. So do you see this, the analogy of uh, your Microsoft Word, 
you know, it would be your IDE and then your tech, your notepad would be your VS code. Um, and they serve different niches, different contexts, right? Do you see that as, as you know, lasting five, 10 years down the road, r- them running in parallel, or do you see VS code as eventually becoming like the one true editor as it usurps its, uh, its established see- product? You know, I think that one of the things we have learned um, in the last five years as well is that we used to do five-year planning. We no longer do that because the tech world changes so fast. Like five years ago, can you imagine we're here talking about these things and talking about Kubernetes and containers and, mm-hmm. you know. It's a different world. It's a different world. So, so I really... I, I, That's the best non-answer I've gotten in a long time. That's a very good non-answer because you're right. Like, I don't, the answer is we don't know. We don't plan five, ten years out. Yeah. We just we really don't anymore. And if we do, then that plan is irrelevant. It's irrelevant by the time the five years hits, because who knows what's going to happen next year? It's just a bad guess, <laughs> or a good guess. <laughs> Could be good. You know, I, if I'm going to bet on it, anything I guess right now, it's going to be wrong. Right. It's just going to be wrong. Right. I mean, like, you know, again, you know, like, if you go back, think back in 2012, can you imagine the world? Not just about what happened to Microsoft, but can you imagine? all the technology advances that we're seeing today, what's going on with AI, what's yeah. going on with you know, machine learning, what's going on with containers. And like, you just talk about technical advances. It's like, no, I absolutely could not. So whatever I guess will be wrong, that much mm-hmm. I know, if I look five years out. <laughs> so I think that the most, I, I personally think the best way for us to really keep, you know, keep going forward is to have a very tight engagement loop constantly hear our customers' feedback, right? Understand in the new world, what are the new pain points our customers are experiencing and continue to provide value to our customers. Like that's really quickly, right? Mm-hmm. That's actually the way to kind of keep moving forward with the industry. We're creating new technologies, other companies creating new technologies, the entire industry is moving up very fast and we just have to go keep going, you know, with that flow. This episode is brought to you by our friends at TopTal, the best place to work as a freelancer or hire the top 3% of freelance talent for developers, designers, and finance experts. In this segment, I talk with Jeff Mazur. My name is Jeff Mazur, and I'm a TopTal finance expert. And Jeff has a pretty awesome background for a freelancer. I have a background both in finance and law, and I have um, I actually have a CFA and a, and a JD. I've worked both in finance and as a practicing lawyer for major law firms in New York, Washington, and, and uh, Chicago. So I asked Jeff to share what differentiates TopTal as a global talent network and the process he had to go through to ensure he could be trusted as a finance expert for TopTal. The differentiator I see between TopTal and some of the organizations that are comparable or try to offer a similar type of service is that the people who are part of TopTal have really gone through pretty extensive screens. So in my case, for example, I probably spent 20 hours you know, of preparation and conversation and interviewing um, to make sure that I was the right fit for, uh, for TopTal. So what I offer and what other TopTal finance experts offer is we offer just just really deep expertise in the areas that, that we talk about. So, for example, if you look at, you know, ICOs, 
If you just did a Google search or you went into another platform and you look for ICO experts, ICO coordinators, ICO finance experts, you'd come across thousands of people. I mean, given the, the frothiness of the market and the level of interest in the market, you know, everyone's a finance expert right now in, in uh, ICOs. But in, in the case of TopTal, what they've really done is that they winnowed that you know huge group out to come up with people who really are experts in the field. So if you're looking to freelance or you're looking to gain access to a network of top industry experts in development, design, or finance, head to TopTal.com and tell them Adam from the Genes Doll sent you. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. And for those out there wanting a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelaw.com. And by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. It provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. And their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org changelog. It's open source and free to use. And there's also professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org changelog. You've been there from the beginning. I have been there. Right, take us to the beginning. Before man. VS Code was VS Code. So there's a previous name? There's a previous, well, it's called Visual Studio Windows Online Code. Monaco. Windows Online Monaco. No, Visual Studio no. Online, in quotes, Monaco. Okay. So what this, well, so I'll take you back to the very beginning. Um, it started out with an experiment to see if we could build an HTML and JavaScript-based code editor that could be hosted in the browser. Um, I think Chrome... What year just, is this? Six years ago, so 2011. 2011. Um, math. So I think Chrome at that time just came out with the notion of web workers, so being able to run processes, which then enabled us to be able to do things like have IntelliSense and errors and things like that. So um, Eric Gamma had basically started on that project. That was his first project at Microsoft. And um, built that up. We needed some way to dog food the editor. So the correct term yep. is champagne the editor. Champagning is that what it is? Now? Yeah, you don't say dog food anymore. Think how weird this is. We eat our own dog food. Really? How about this? We drink our own champagne. It implies good stuff no matter what. Just think about it. Maybe try it on for size. I'm gonna have to work it through a couple <laughs> times. Okay, continue. <clears throat> but I like it. So we champagned um, yes. the editor by building a little bit of a workbench around the editor that we could then develop the editor with. Right? So it was like a little bit an explorer and editor and okay. um, source code control I think we built in there. But it really was um, done as a little node server that ran locally on the machine. So you HTTP whatever, and you get this little workbench up, full access to all your files for the editor, and we'd build the editor and, and champagne the editor at the same time. Um, and so we built out this editor, which actually was pretty popular across Microsoft. Um, like if you go to OneDrive and you look at source code, that's, that's the editor. Azure, any place you go in there and look at source code, that's the Monaco editor. It's the same editor that's in VS Code itself. If you go to Edge and browser, and even I, maybe I, I don't know, the F12 tools um, in Windows and look at source code, that's the uh, Monaco. Monaco editor. 
Um, it's a bunch of other places. So that you know got pretty popular. And as we did it, we built more and more of this workbench around the editor. So we had this locally hosted uh, development environment, which since it was running on Node and it was an HTML and JavaScript thing, it could easily be moved up to the cloud. So we kind of looked at like, what's the next step from a code editor? Like, well, we want to develop you know, a fuller web-based app. And Azure websites and all that stuff are starting to, to come online. And so what we decided to do is say, hey, can we host this workbench in Azure so that you could do live editing of your websites straight in the portal? And so I said, yeah, let's do that. We kind of, you know, brought that up online, which was fairly easy because of the whole architecture. And we branded that or named that Visual Studio Online quotes Monaco. Um, so that's where it originated from. Okay. And this then 2001. No, 11. By 2011. 2011 is when we started the editor. And probably it was 2013. Oh, yeah, that's 2001. 2001. Where we, no, it wasn't around 2001. The space yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's probably 2012 or 2013 when we did uh, Visual Studio Online. Um, and that was an interesting project. The thing that was difficult about it was that it didn't really enable a bunch of developers to do anything because you had, there were so many things that you had to do before you got there, right? Like, had to have a subscription, had to have a website, you had to have this, that, you know, pull up the magic, whatever, and then you could use this online hosted tool. Um, but it was pretty cool. Like, everybody, you know, there's a big wave of, Online hosted tooling that was going on around that time it was like Cloud Nine. Mm -hmm. and I can't I can remember all the all the Ace. Ones. Ace was the editor that well, Cloud, Cloud Nine, Nine used. Oh, and right. there was a, yeah. Well, Cloud Nine may have used Ace. There was two of them: Code Mirror and Ace. Those were the two editors. And then Monaco was the the third one. Okay, I can um, recall that time period. Those things weren't. They were never that sticky, from a user's perspective. No. In no. the browser, you mean? Yeah, in the browser. Browser-based yeah. tools were, were never... Very it was a big sell. It was like, you know... Everything could be in the browser. Underpowered browser. notebook, whatever. Yeah. Right. You know, ID in the cloud. And Office was Office has a suite of tools that actually work in the browser fairly well. Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things you could do and see, like, a natural progression. Like, you've got a desktop application, which would have been Visual Studio, and then you've got browser-based tools. Um, but you're right. Like, it's, it, the, the challenge with those is that it was a bunch of challenges. The biggest one that, that we saw was that it was great. You got your development tool in the, in the browser, but all your other tools are on your machine. And so there's no connection between the code that you're working on in the browser and, oh, I need to run this other tool at the same time. How do you bridge that gap? So um, it was an all-in scenario. You had to either go all-in all-in on the cloud. And exactly. And people aren't all-in on the cloud for anything. development tools. Developer tools. There's latency. There's Network you know, interruptions. Yeah. Requires yeah. an internet connection. Yeah, you can't work offline. Can't go under tunnels and stuff like that. Work here in New York City. There are cool aspects to it, right? Like the idea where you could go and just spin up an environment instantly and not have to provision anything on your machine. That's a cool it's aspect. It's great for educational it. means. I, yep. I used to use yeah. it to teach web development, and it's like we just spin up in a browser, and there's no prereqs. doesn't matter what operating system you're on. Yeah. But when it came time for me to actually write code, I'm not going to use that. Yeah, from an educational scenario where you've got this box that you're working in, works great. Um, so then what we decided to do is, you know, it was, it was kind of popular, um, but we decided, well, let's try to do, it. what we saw was that we we're actually getting a lot of people that were coming from non-Windows machines using it. Like, hmm, there's an audience out there that we could go and talk to that we, today with the suite of tools, which was Visual Studio at the time, we had nothing that we could go and say, hey, you cool guy using a Mac sitting at Starbucks working on your web app, if I'm from Microsoft, 
I can't talk to you. I have nothing. Like I have to say, close your close your Mac. Right. Get rid of your operating system. Get rid of your tools. Da 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 da. It's two worlds. Yeah, and and be like, all right, go. At away. that point, you're like, I'm just trying to drink my coffee, man. Yeah, yeah. Get out. Get out of my face. <laughs> so um, we decided to pivot and see if we could do a, a local client-based tool again. Since we had this node infrastructure and everything, we moved it over to what was it called before? It was Electron? There was Electron before that was called Atom Shell. Right. But then there was the Ad- the before uh, Atom Shell. Before Atom Shell, there was another um, tool that let you host node apps on the desktop. So yeah, so that was kind of the genesis of the whole thing. Um, but then once we had that tool, we could say, all right, actually we have something to talk to people about, and we decided that. You know, we couldn't just come up with yet another code editor. Like, okay, there's Sublime, there's Notepad++, there's Atom, all these bunch of code editors out there. We have to do something different. So what we um, decided to do is we called it re- redefining what the code editor should be in the modern world for a modern developer. And that was really about great editing experiences out of the box and great debugging experiences out of the box. So Visual Studio has always sort of had this strong debugging lineage, right? It's like, hey, what's the best debugger? A lot of people say Visual Studio. Um, so what we want to do is kind of take the best of that, the best of the editing, bring that to the code editor space, and basically create our own place where we could say, you know what, we've got a tool that you can use. Um, it's going to be a better editing experience. You're going to get debugging, but it fits in with the rest of the stuff you're doing. You don't have to drop everything and come over to our stuff. Try it out. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, try again in six months when we, you know, bridge more features. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so that was kind of the genesis of it. And, and really, that's, that's, that's the way it progressed, right? We had people kick the tires from it right away. Um, and they used it for a short amount of time. Said, hey, it's missing XYZ ABC, and it's not open source. Uh, maybe we'll check in with you again in the future. And so we just cranked away at it, right? With this whole good backlog of things to do. And, um, and we still do it today, right? It's every month, very public roadmap and all that stuff. We're just constantly churning out you know, required feature after required feature so that people can actually just pick it up and use it. So, yeah, I mean, and, and then it's, it's been fairly successful. What would be the tent pole features for somebody who's... So, as we said, like, our audience and people in our community are very interested in it. People are trying it. It's won over a lot of people. Uh, we both downloaded it. We both used it. I'm still stuck on Sublime for reasons that I would love to talk to you maybe offline or maybe with it online. Yeah, you can talk to me but, online. I'm happy to... Um, very impressed. Like everybody's very impressed. What are the selling points to say a Vim user or a Atom user? Or I know these are all very different users, but maybe PJ, this is a good place for you to hop in. Like one aspect that seems like is like there's a batteries included to it in terms of like the the setup experience. But what do you guys consider when you're like, okay, here's what uh, VS Code has going for it right out of the box today? What are its advantages that would compel somebody to switch or even just try it? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, like Chris said, uh, really strong uh, editing uh, and debugging experiences. Um, out of out of the box uh, support for Node, JavaScript, TypeScript, um, that primarily is a is a function of that's the language that VS Code itself is written in. Um, but expanding it to other languages like Python, like uh, Java's recent one, um, Go, he's spoken with Rami in the past. Um, but that debugging experience that a lot of um, Visual Studio users have have known and are are somewhat used to, um, but we've you know been able to bring that to um, this 
this VS Code package that can be delivered on, on any operating system. Um, I think also a big component of it is honestly the, the openness and transparency of the VS Code team with the community. Mm. So um, I think a number of, of people that have been uh, converts from other tools have been because they've been able to interact with members of the VS Code team on GitHub through issues or pull requests or um, even over, over Twitter. Uh, I think that's something that the team uh, prides themselves on quite a bit is how, is how open and uh, how engaged they are with the community of not just developers that use VS Code, but developers that use other tools. Yeah, I'll echo, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's editing and debugging. So like I say, you're a JavaScript guy and you're using Sublime, right? You probably have a bunch of packages that you've figured out that you kind of like and recommend it from other people. It may or may not provide you with sort of a, a completion experience for your plain old JavaScript, right? Yeah. So you open up in VS Code, right? You've got a, a folder, open it up, express application, come in, type in, you know, app dot, you'll get statement completion, IntelliSense, overloads, all sorts of stuff about the express object without having to do anything. What'll happen is, since we use TypeScript as the language server for JavaScript, it does a whole bunch of work for us in analyzing the JavaScript, but it also goes and actually downloads um, TypeScript definition files, which basically people write TypeScript files which define or, or almost type the shape of regular old JavaScript yeah. libraries. That's right? the coolest thing I learned today is that to be clear, you don't have to be writing TypeScript yourself. You're writing your regular JavaScript, right. but in the background, what do you say? It's the language server? As so I can, yeah, you want to explain what that is? The language server? Go ahead. So um, basically what happens is, you know, you've got your presentation of, of the, the source code, right? And we use TextMate grammar to syntax colorize, right? It's kind of standard across all editors. But when you want to do like IntelliSense or, you know, object browser and all that stuff, you kind of need a, a language server which will... Uh, effectively offer up, you know, an AST and send that back over to, to VS Code. And so there's a whole spectrum of support for languages and extensions for VS Code. And the ones that are the best, like JavaScript or TypeScript or Python or Go, all have this language server that runs basically in another process. It's usually written in the language that it's running in, which is cool, right? Because you're going to do Python, you probably have Python on your machine. Right. Um, but it's smart enough to give you all that semantic information about your source file. So for JavaScript, we use the TypeScript compiler. Right, we just spin that thing up because it basically runs as JavaScript. Right. And it's smart enough, it gives you whole completions, all this, everything that you need, errors, warnings. Um, but as far as you're concerned, from as a JavaScript guy, you, you, who cares? It's just it's seamless to you. But yeah, it, it just gives you all the benefits you a, of using it. I mean, not all the benefits of writing in TypeScript. You get a, yeah, you get a good amount. Good amount of yeah, and more and more come online. Um, you know, every month with TypeScript. But, but I think there's two, there was sort of two components there, which is, you know, one is uh, the bringing the TypeScript um, to writing JavaScript in VS Code is what gives you the ability to write, you know, var x equals some string. And then when you call in x dot, you get string completions, not just every completion that it could possibly be because it's JavaScript and you're, you're not sure. Right, it's all that. Um, but where some of the, the TypeScript definitions come in is understanding of Node, understanding of Angular. So it's sort of going the, the next step in, you know, why we say IntelliSense necessarily right. instead of autocomplete. Yeah, there's thousands of TypeScript definition files for all the popular uh, like Node packages or JavaScript packages that are out there. 
the other thing I wanted to note on this point was, um, I just forgot what it was. Let's It'll talk, come to me. Sorry. <laughs> so let's, let's focus in on the debugging aspects. So um, when I think about IDEs and text editors, I think of like... Oh, wait. Can I go, go back to what I remembered? No. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So the other thing about, about TypeScript and JavaScript, like it is, you, you, you can do sort of like a single file... You know, var x equals some string and go x and give you like, oh, I recognize that's a string, right? Parse can do that. But with TypeScript, it, it works actually cross-file. All the files and folders in your workspace, you can sort of say, here's the universe of things. So then I get completions against things that are in other files. As long as they're in the same project or folder. Or yeah, and you can even go so far as uh, put a, uh, a JSON file in the folder to say, here's what my workspace looks like. Here's what my project looks like. Include these files, exclude these files. This is how I want the compiler to run against it. And you configure it uh, quite a bit. But by default, it just happens. So, sorry. That's right. If I didn't jump in there, I would have lost my mind. Very good. Uh, no problem. Now, what was I talking about? Debugging. Debugging. I look at text editors and IDEs very differently because I, I don't expect debugging from a text editor. I de they usually have limited debugging. Some of them have, you know, like I'm used to a command line debugger. I'm more of a what I call a puts debugger or a you know trace debugger, which is the person who's putting the print statements in. Um, so I'm you know not a good developer. We find out there's lots of us who just you know yeah we had this conversation console logs yeah I can't remember we, we had this conversation Firefox. Uh, not Firefox, but uh, Mozilla Debugger. The, the de yeah, the, the debugger inside the Firefox That's right. Tools, um project. That's so right. that being said, I watch, I watch other people do some debugging, and I see the value. I see the stuff that you demoed today, and that's what I'd like you to go into. Like, give us the real juicy, because for me, it has to be like a killer feature for me to be like, all right, I'm going to start using uh, this and the debugger in my life. Um, where I'm ingrained to just like throw some console logs and see what happens. Show us, talk to us about the debugger inside VS Code and some of the stuff you show with like the live shared debugging, like this craziness that I think people would be interesting to try, even if they're not debugger people. Yeah, so I should say console log, console.log is just fine. <laughs> Everybody does it, right? Um, oh, yeah. But uh, I think the, the biggest thing for me when debugging, right, so once you, once you press F5, the debugger spins up, the biggest thing for me is that, you know, it's easy to set a breakpoint. I don't have to plow through oodles of console.log output to figure out, you know, where it is that something is happening. Like, okay, this is the general area, hit a breakpoint, and then I get an immediate window that comes up, or REPL, and I can come in and evaluate expressions right there, right? So I can start to understand what X is, what Y is, and figure out where they are. Um, you know, it, in, inspecting values, it's just that much faster. You don't have to litter your code with console.logs. You don't have to take it out. You don't have to deal with, you know, all the output that happens. Um, I mean, but still at times, like, console.log is, is still a very useful thing, so I'm not thinking that it completely replaces it. Sure. Um, and, of course, you get, you know, call stack. You get watch windows and, and all sorts of goodness. Break I think all of those extra things. So I should preface it with I more I do do just trace statements, but I'll often use uh, kind of what I call, like, weak debugger is like a, a pry tool like in Ruby there's a gem called pry yep. which it's a stop the world type of a thing and it gives you the REPL but it doesn't provide the call stack and you can dig in for those things yep. but they're not like you know, you're not seeing frames here and you don't have like the list of locals there's just less chrome around it yep. um, what we try to do is strike this balance between the, the, the power of the debugger and what we present in the UI so okay. it's not 
it's, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, so it's not overwhelming. We try to not be overwhelming in VS Code. We actually try to make it so that um, people that write debuggers can actually contribute things back to the, the Explorer on the left-hand side. Mm. Um, so for like a particular language, if there's something that's really useful for that language, they can contribute it. But everybody is not then you know, bombarded with that UI. So we try to make it pluggable for the, for the debuggers. Um, the shared debugging stuff we showed today was actually really cool because, I mean, the scenario was really like, hey, can you come over here and look at this? Like, help me debug this thing. And basically you sit there and you're both like step, 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 step. But if you're in another room, another place, you know, be able to let you do it. it so this really struck me as... as like how this works. This is not screen sharing. It is not screen sharing. It's sharing of the debug session and the data and the breakpoints and the, in, the, the instruction pointer, call stack, everything. And the, the whole workspace. So it's not just one file. It's not just yeah, yeah, what's yeah. active in your window right now. It's the whole workspace yeah. that you currently have. Collaborative on the same session or what yes collaborate yes. in the same editing and debug session which is which is really cool and it really struck me right like there's always this time when you when you have a feature that comes online and you're like okay i get it right or like oh i can no longer live without that and quite honestly two weeks ago we were preparing these demos right and there was another like the team that does the um the live share was getting their part done and we were bringing the two things together for the demo. And I was running into a problem with the Docker extension that I demoed today. And it was pretty deep in the bowels of, of VS Code where the, the exception was getting thrown. Um, and I was sort of in a panic and I'm like, hey, can somebody help me debug this? And so one of the guys, half the team's in Switzerland, one of the guys said, hey, I'll stay on the phone call with you and we'll debug the process. We'll debug it after we finish this other meeting. I'm like, cool. So I screen share with him. And he's like, okay, put a breakpoint here. And he's like, oh, wait, no, you close the file. Open that file back up again. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay. All right, no, put a break. Okay, step, step, step over, step. Nope, step into that one. All right, let's restart. Like, it was just this whole, like, him guiding me on what to do. Right, plus the latency over the sea. And the latency, the ocean. and it was just a huge pain. And then as we started to build up the scenario and stuff, and I'm like, I just kept thinking, if only Alex and I had this two weeks ago, it would have been a game changer. And that was to me the, the, the moment where I went like, oh my God, I get it, right? Because like, I kind of feel like shared editing is a little bit of a, you know, how often are you two gonna write the same code together in the same file? Well, there's a lot of people that practice pair programming. In that case, I yeah. think it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree, it, it, in many cases, it seems like a, like a good marketing thing to say it's live collaborative yeah. editing and it's like we've all done that with docs but you know is the real value there with code i so think with pair programmers probably it is but with lots of but for the debugging was the thing that really got me. and it totally sold you yeah right then and there i was like okay got it this is it um and, and so i mean that's that's the thing that was really cool i think about the live share thing is the fact that it's the workspace and and literally there is no node on that other machine and as part of this demo, we actually went through this whole process where we were debugging the web app running in a Docker container on my machine because you can basically attach to a running Docker container, set breakpoints, and debug the code that's in there. That's and so cool. we it's were like sharing. It's like next level stuff. Yeah. Because <laughs> the other guy, the other person on their site, all they need is the editor. 
they just they're need, connecting to your session. So yeah. they, they don't have dependency in they, right. they don't need right. any of that stuff. So and we were VS actually or VS Code. Like it's not even necessarily they don't need to have VS Code. They can have I mean Amanda had Visual Studio 2017. So yeah. Chris is going from VS Code on a Mac to Visual Studio on a PC. So what does that session data look like on the wire? Is it some sort of it has to be a normalized format that at least those tools can use. Is it a thing that you know you could publish a spec and people could plug it in so I could be using Sublime and you could be using VS Code and because we both, you know, whoever wrote the Sublime side of it wrote to that format, they could get the session data. I mean, is that a p potential thing or I think it's definitely potentially. I don't know if it's in the roadmap or where it is in the roadmap, but if you think about it, it makes sense. Right, it's it's kind of like we, we talked a little bit about language servers earlier. Yeah, um, we actually have this, I guess, thing protocol. It's called the language server protocol that we made open source and public and everything. Which basically means that any editor or IDE can use the language server and plug into the environment. So like, exactly. you can use Sublime with TypeScript and get a pretty rich editing experience because it goes to the language server protocol. Huh. So you can imagine that. You know, in this model, that there's a protocol that's running over the wire, so one editor can connect to another editor or IDE or whatever it is. Right. And that could be something that's open sourced and all editors take advantage of, and there's basically a plugin for each editor. But I don't think we're far enough down the road yet to say, right. okay, here we've got this protocol, everybody go build. Sure. Right? You, just you just demoed the feature for the, what was it, the first demo? Yeah, it was the first time. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. Yeah, it's brand new stuff. But the model makes sense, right? Um, and it is definitely, it's a protocol. And it's, it's funny to see sort of the big circle of life. We were talking about this earlier about, you know, recycling names. Like, a lot of stuff in VS Code, standard in, standard out, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just piping, and it works really well. Yeah. Uh, so you can do the same thing with, with these as well. No, nothing new under the sun. Just new names. That's right. Um, let's talk about the roadmap a little bit. We've seen what you've been up to. Are, first of all, are, the, are there any major you know, features that are just clearly still lacking that somebody says, well, I can't switch because of feature X, and you guys are all like, yeah, we know, that's coming. Are there any of those? And if not, like, what else is... Well, the biggest one that we just shipped literally last week uh, was multi-root workspace support. So up until now, if you want to open up two folders at the same time, you have two instances of VS Code. Um, and what we now support is the ability to have multiple top-level folders open at the same time. Language servers work against them, extensions work against them properly. Um, we've been working on that for six months, probably. There's a lot, a lot of work. Mm, There's it's a been lot of insiders for a few months now. Yeah, so the insiders has had it for a while. And really in the last milestone, we kind of held off releasing it in stable because we wanted to do a push to make sure that, you know, the top extensions that are out there were all multi-root aware. So that there's like there's sort of this very root API um, that had a an assumption about the fact that there was one workspace and just let everybody use that. Uh, so we had to make sure that people were supporting the fact that you could have multiple roots. Like the old singleton design principle problem. Yeah, there's only ever going to be one of these. Yeah, and then six months later, you're like, it'd be great if there was two of those yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or n of those, right? Mm -hmm. So that has clearly been the biggest one that people have been uh, been asking us for. And there's a there's a you know, there's a long tail of of things that people are looking for. The other thing that we just released was the ability to have the the horizontal pane that's at the bottom of the debugger, uh, debug console, the terminal, everything, to put that to be vertical in 
the space. So if you got a widescreen monitor, you can have your console on the right, okay. code in the middle, explorers on the left. Um, and I think that's kind of, you see a lot of feature requests for people stemming about wanting to have more control over the editors, the layout of the editors inside the environment. So I want to be able to split horizontally or vertically at the same time. Um, so those are the things that we'll, we'll start to, now that we're sort of out of the multi-root workspace, um, push, which was a lot of people uh, across the team. In the short term, like really for the upcoming month, month and a half left in the calendar year, it's really just a push on performance and bug fixing and, and not a like whole slew of new features. Mm. Um, we publish our roadmap on GitHub in our wiki. Uh, and so you can go up there and there's just a whole slew of things. I have to think off the top of my head what's in there. <laughs> well, if it's published, we don't need to talk about it. Click the link, <laughs> Click the link in the show notes. No, but Click that's one roadmap. of the things that, that we try to do is um, every... Six to 12 months, we, we put together a, a you know, 12 to 18 month roadmap. We publish that on the wiki. And then for each milestone, we go through a whole planning process. We publish that, we make it real. Um, and we turn from draft into like, this is the plan. And then at the end of each milestone, we publish our uh, end game, like schedule and process and testing and all that stuff. So everything is, is completely out there. Uh, in the open. And a lot of these um, elements, I, I don't think the roadmap, but like the iteration plans and things like that, not only are they visible and readable, but you can comment on them and, and oh, react yeah. to them. So mm. it, it's good because you get real-time feedback just as we post the plan. Yep. What's the larger motivation of this project? You mentioned earlier, uh, and I think we kind of talked a bit about with Julia, about you know any app or any developer, any, what's the, what's the mission? Remind me the please remind us of Microsoft's mission. Well, it was for VS Code. Just well, Microsoft's like, mission in general. The, like any any developer, any app, any platform. There yes. you go. Yeah. So given that, you know, what's the motivation for VS Code? You mentioned back to the original scenario. Jared's in Starbucks. He's cool. He's on a Mac, and you have nothing to offer him. <laughs> you know, right? You're uh, you're mostly cool. And he's using an editor. Right. So he's using an editor. <laughs> you have nothing to offer him. So what's the motivation? What what is the you know the mission statement? I guess behind VS Code. Like why? Why this editor? Why, why are you guys doing this? What's the larger picture? Well, I think the larger picture is, is like the world is no longer a place where you can say, we've got this thing, this great thing, come to us and use it and you'll be happy, right? People are like, no, oh, I've got these, all these other tools and things that I'm using. And I kind of mentioned this before, like we didn't have anything for this whole class of developers, not on Windows, not using IDEs, very sort of modern, webby, node-oriented developers, JavaScript and all that, we had nothing to talk to you about. There was no way to have that conversation. You were a developer we were never going to be able to attract at all. And so the motivation for VS Code was to break down that barrier and say, actually, you know what? We do have something that you could use. And then we give that to you. And if you like it, cool. Right? Maybe there's some other stuff from us that you'll use at some point in the future. And if you don't like it, at least we had a conversation. And maybe in six months, you'll hear about it from your buddy. Oh, yeah, I know. I, yeah, I heard about it. Let me go look at it again. And maybe at that point, there's enough stuff for you to sort of come on, on board. But the days where you could say, here's our developer ecosystem. Come to our ecosystem. Drop everything else you're doing. That's over. Right? And Microsoft can't survive in that model. So we really had to sort of turn around and say, well, we've got tools for everybody. 
And we've got great tools, like we have a history of having awesome tools. And by virtue of using our tools, perhaps you will also use these other things that we have. Such as? Great. Azure. Azure. <laughs> Azure. <laughs> Azure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, is it to attract essentially things to the brand name of Microsoft that they are no longer uh, side-eyed, as you've used the term before? Like people are... I guess there's... They're kind of getting well, this level of respect back that may have not been there from every developer out there. I right? think, I mean, so you could say... If you looked at it and just said, oh, the goal is to get people to do uh, Azure, I think that's not the entire story because that can't be your only goal. Your other goal has to be, I believe, to be a, uh, an excellent player in the developer ecosystem, right? And then that requires you to do things like be open source, be transparent. Like you're, you're a valid person in the ecosystem because if not, developers don't like you. Right? And so you, you can't have one without the other, I, I think. You can't just say, all right, we're on the ecosystem, but we're closed, we don't do anything, and right. then we want you to use Azure. No, right. you have to be a viable member of that ecosystem and in order to be even considered. So we have to do both of those things. And I think our mission for the past couple of years, seriously, has been the first part. Go break down all those old barriers that Microsoft put up for all these developers out there that that just aren't on our stuff. Just go make people happy. That, that literally was Scott's directive when we first did this. He just said, all I want you to do, don't worry about anything else. Just go get your first yeah. X thousand people, make them happy developers. That's, that's empowering. That's an interesting mission. It's funny yeah. to me because like that, when we talk about open source and motivations and stuff like that, it's not money. You know, there's other reasons people do open source, but like a lot of them boils town, whether it's a big company like Microsoft or right. Adam Sokoviak, like, we just want people to like us. That's <laughs> like, right. It's like, it boils down to, be my what? friend. Yeah. You guys, you guys like us? Yeah. I mean, think about it. I do cool open source. People value it. They benefit from it. And they'll like me. I mean, right. it's very kind of a base motivation, but we all kind of share it. Yeah. Even though we have our other reasons as well. Just interesting. You got to be a good citizen. Yeah. Right. That's the truth. Nobody likes a matter. bad citizen. Well, you have a bright spot on you if you're not. It's easy. A it's easy to spot see. Like a meaning or a shadow. Either or. Pick your pick your metaphor. But the point I'm saying is like you stand out. If I think you're, you're if you're not a good citizen, you're, I think you stand you're almost out. ignored. That's well, where Microsoft will give you the side. It's easy Microsoft to recognize at the point where like a vast, a large majority. I don't know if it's a vast majority. Just irrelevant. Doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Doesn't right. speak my language. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it had to break that down. Yeah. So that, that has been our, our mission. To How's go that going? Is that, is that happening? I think so. Yeah. Well, so you said that uh, Scott gave you that mission, go make people happy, go make developers happy. Uh, what was your, you know, how did you track that? How do you even measure that? How have you measured that? Uh, there's a bunch of ways we look at it. Um, Downloads probably is, a, is an impactor, right? Downloads is, downloads is a bit of a vanity, vanity metric um, because you can download it all you want, but if you don't use it, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Right? And so we look, at, times. we look at usage, engaged usage of it. Do you have analytics on usage? We do. Uh, is that so an opt-out sort of a thing? Yeah. What's that? Like yes. You opt out of that during downloads? We often get that question oh. often. If you're oh, yeah, tracking you, analytics essentially of usage... Yes, you can opt out of it. Okay. Definitely. Um, so we look at that. We, we watch Twitter quite a bit. 
um, because you get a very sort of instant pulse as to what's going on. We look at um, like NPS scores, a you know a standardized score. I guess Facebook came up with that. I don't know a whole bunch about the history of it, but it's basically your ratio to promoters versus detractors, right? Based on a quick survey. Yeah. We look net at promoter that. score. Yeah. Yeah, the net promoter yeah. score. Yep. Um, how how likely are you to delete? It turns mm-hmm. out it's a yeah. There's a lot of people that do that, but it turns it's out to be a very effective. Spam. I think it's effective because it's a single question, one through ten. Yeah. You just click it, and you're done. Yeah. Um, but and I a lot of the it. a lot of the middle are actually thrown out. It's really it's only the people at the Six high plus. end and the low end. All you care about is the haters and the lovers. Yeah, because those are the ones that actually have the the impact on other they people. Have a, that's right. A multiplicative effect. Yep. Yep. And we look at that uh, issues, you know, sentiment that comes in through issues. Uh, what else do we look at? Uh, and in our um, blog post that we published for for this event for Connect, um, we shared that uh, it's November in November. Um, monthly active users, so people who used the, the tool once that month, uh, 2.6 million, I think, was the number. Yep. So, so that's a pretty decent that's a good number. number. That's like during the month of November. Yeah. How many people are on the team? So they're about 25. I could go through all the names and I could mm. count them all. <laughs> it was like 10 in Zurich and 12 ish. I really in... throw the hard balls at them. There yeah. you go. Well, it's just, it's, it's 25-ish? So, like, the problem is this, <laughs> right? Like, if I get the number wrong, because there are so few people on the team, mm. I'm really Someone cutting one person off, Someone right? Someone's going to know exactly. Yeah. It was like, it was 300. It's like, okay, yeah, it's 302. It's like, it doesn't really matter. But there's, like, 22. Everyone's going to be like, Chris forgot about yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, if I say 11, and, you know, it's like, no, there's one person less. Um, <laughs> it's roughly that. I'll take roughly And I'm also thinking about the Slack channel that we have because there's extra people in the slack channel mm. which are not on the core team well the reason why i asked that was <laughs> that i wanted to measure that next to the community contributors and just see how much it's been embraced from a contribution perspective because you know a good like you said a good community member of the open source you're not even though it's a product and so there's product roadmap and vision like you said the roadmap's published and and commentable um are there other people outside of microsoft that are that are contributing have you gotten that going and then how does that you know, play back into the editor and yeah, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. Maybe you know them, but we are one of the top. Uh, so every projects on GitHub every year, the... GitHub releases sort of like a uh, report that uh, you know it's kind of like their State of the Union, I guess, where they share a couple of of metrics. And one of the metrics was um, open source projects uh, ranked by contributors. Um, VS Code was number one, so we were the had the most contributors, most contributors of any repo on GitHub. Wow. Um, link is also in the in a, the blog post that we posted, so we can. I don't remember the URL off the top of my head, but yeah, but send yeah. Us, send us that. Uh, and there was a, a couple other ones um, on there, and there was also you know number of of contributions and and things like that. But yeah, I, I think in short, the question you know does how much does the community contribute to the growth and uh, improvements in VS Code? It's a lot. If you look like at the release notes every milestone, we actually list out all the people that did pull requests that we were able to pull in in that milestone. It's yeah. in the tens and twenties every month. What do you think you've done that has enabled that? You know, what are you doing well that other projects that aim to have your mission can learn from you? Contributors. How many? Four hundred twenty-nine on the VS Code repo. Now, there may be other repos yeah, as well. Yeah, the report lists a different number. I don't know exactly how the, how they calculate the difference, but... 
still a good number. And there was one which was of all Microsoft projects, we were number one. And then there was another one which was all of GitHub. Yeah. I think we were, we were the number one Microsoft project. Uh, I'm not sure if we were the number one overall. That would make more sense. There's fi over 5,000 forks, which is a good number. Yeah. Um, you have 94 open pull requests, 5,000 plus open issues, very active. Uh, 2,259 closed pull requests. So that's, there's a good metric yeah, there. That's... 94 open may sound like a lot open, but when you have you know, 2,200 closed, you're making your way through them. So yeah. Yeah. anyways, back to Adam's question. So what was the question again? Sorry. What, what have you done to enable this kind oh, of yeah, contribution? Yeah, that's right. uh, let's, I think it's a bunch of things. It's not just one. Um, I think things that we've done right are the, the transparency in our planning. Like being able, putting that out there, let people comment on it, seeing what the roadmap is, I think has been very um, useful in that. I was just talking to another guy uh, earlier, PJ and I were, the fact that we sort of recognize folks that are actually contributing to the project has been a huge motivator for people. It's almost like, you know, GitHub commits where you're like, hey, it's my resume. Like people take this huge pride in being recognized the fact that they contributed to the project. And we're excited about it. And, you know, we say, hey, thank you. And then people are like, hey, my pull request got in. So there's a lot of that that goes on. I think there's also, we've been... Right from the from the, sort of the get go, we kind of published like here's here's sort of the guidelines about how to contribute to the product and what we're trying to do and all that stuff. I think when people ask us questions, we're honest, right? Like like, hey, you know, why are you doing this or this? Why isn't this open source or that open source or license and questions like that? We're like, this is what we did, and here's why. And people appreciate that honesty. Um, when we screw up, we admit it, right? Like we go out and say, yep. We had an orange icon. People didn't like the orange icon. <laughs> yeah, there was controversy around the icon recently. A little bit, yeah. a little bit. Um, but so but the point is, you're listening. They changed it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we respond. It's, it's you're open. You're transparent. You respond. You care. Yeah. Right. You're quick to change when change is required. Yeah, and it's not a free for all though, right? It's not right. just like a rudderless project. It's like we this is what we're doing and this is where we're going. Right. Um, we'll take feedback and everything in it. Uh, What's what's one in you know less than a minute? What's one call to action for those listening? To what's a good first step? Download it, play with it, check out issues. What's what's a good call to action for those out there listening? Go download the insiders builds. Get those insiders builds. They're great. Tell us about that because our you know our community is very much we're enthusiasts, we're hackers, Edge. and so is this a oh, yeah. this is for a nightly build, right? It is our nightly build. Like I, I was saying this morning, it is the exact same build that we use to build VS Code. Insider's build. Insider's build. Comes out every night, Zurich time. Where do you go for that? Zurich time. Um, on the download page, there's a big green button to download VS Code. There's an arrow next to it. If you click on the arrow, it'll show you both stable and insiders. And so it'll update every morning. Basically, you just kind of get into this rhythm of, okay, I'm just going to update. And it takes a couple seconds and boom, you're ready Brand to new go. features every morning. Brand new bugs sometimes every morning. Brand new bugs. <laughs> brand new bug fixes too. Oh, yeah. But if you think about it, like, since we're using it to go build VS Code, <laughs> um, any big blockers we usually hit. And we'll, we're not afraid to go pull the trigger and, and re-release an insider's build if people are blocked by it. So I would A, I would go and do that. B, you can go look at uh, how to contribute, which is in the wiki. I would look at the iteration plans. I know you don't want to. And then I would go do a query for, I think it needs help or help wanted uh, in the repo where you can see places where you can start to, 
to kick the tires. The cool thing about it, it's really easy to sort of use VS Code to build VS Code, and we have full instructions on how to do that. So you can run VS Code, you can develop it at the same time, you can hit a breakpoint and debug it from VS Code. That's so, cool. Easy way to get started there. Very cool. And learn about TypeScript too, because it's mostly written in TypeScript. <laughs> Change your life. Change your life. All right. Thank you so much for your time today, guys. Yeah, no problem. So thanks. Thank you. that's it for this episode of the change log thank you for tuning in and if you enjoyed the show you know what to do share with a friend radio snap a podcast go on overcast go on twitter tell everyone you know and special thanks to our sponsors Auth zero digital ocean top Tal, and go cd also thanks to fastly our bandwidth partner head to fastly.com to learn more we host everything we do on linode cloud servers at the linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is done by Jonathan Youngblood. And our awesome music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes just like this at changelog.com or by going to Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Google Play and subscribing. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.